0: Hello and welcome to this instalment of CSO Executive Sessions Australia. I'm Ed Kennedy, the editor of CSO Australia, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Scott Soarley, Executive Director of ICT Services for the University of Southern Queensland. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Ed. Lovely to be here. To start, Scott, can you tell us a little about your role? So it's always a busy space. Uh,
1: So I think I could probably characterize it uh, on on two different dimensions. One, we're sort of continuously working to sort of mature our baseline. um, So the baseline, you know, protective controls, detective controls, making sure we've got a good, solid uh, incident response uh, framework and process in place. And that's just like, you know, know, the critical maturity of working on, on, like, you know, moving the curve upwards. The other side is we're certainly moving from a cyber resilience, sorry, a cybersecurity perspective to a cyber resilience posture. Um, so we are uh, just you know, continuously under attack, as most people are, whether they realise it or not. So there's that you know, c- continuous stream of you know, incoming thing, which you know, the baseline helps us to you know, take some of the the, the noise out. But it's really important to sort of like you know, always be watching for like you know, what the signal and the noise is as well, which are the new attacks. The cyber resilience is really about anticipating attacks, anticipating new attacks, continually building your controls to make sure that they're picking up the things that matter, not just improving like you know, an already mature control that is effective. So really trying to find that balance of actually like you're know, trying to predict, you know, what is the next thing that's actually going to like you know, impact us or could impact us and putting in place controls you know, in front of that. Um, so we're sort of, you know, trying to be ahead of the game. And even if we're, like, you know, 30 seconds ahead of the attackers, that's a really good place to be. We probably never are. Um, but I think, you know, if we're basically making sure we have, like, a good baseline plus that little bit of, like, you know, predictive anticipatory uh, cyber resilience, that will sort of serve us well. And so we're certainly, certainly following those two dimensions.
0: 2023, of course, follows an immensely eventful one in cybersecurity in 2022. How would you reflect on the year prior in the field?
1: Yeah, so twenty twenty two was sort of a heck of a ride. Uh, I think we saw a little bit of everything, um, but really lift the uh, awareness uh, in the broader public and and also at the senior executive and board levels about cybersecurity. They were always aware, and it was always one of the concerns, but it just sort of you know massively escalated and amplified that. We saw you know the geopolitical tensions. Um, sort of like you know, amped up as well. That sort of you know caused a bit of a, sort of a roller coaster ride in some some of the uh, types of attacks we were actually seeing. We saw obviously like you know the, the, the big data breaches, um, the big ransomware attacks. Which were very mainstream, reported very widely, impacted you know millions of people. So all of a sudden, cybersecurity becoming something people were aware of uh, became something like either you were affected or someone you knew was closely affected, and that really sort of like a you know, changed like um the the perspective. The perspective, but it's interesting how uh, the also the government has always been working in the background for a number of years. They've, they've really amped that up, and that's sort of yeah I think it's accelerating and it sort of set the. The environment for, like, you know, the next couple of years, we'll just see a sort of a real acceleration of, like, you know, probably regulation, certainly uh, interest uh, from the markets and from boards, and certainly an increased awareness uh, from individuals about what they need to actually be doing. Or, and hopefully, it, it's more than just being concerned about it. It's actually, you know, translates into something like, you know, they can actually be doing to sort of better protect themselves.
0: How do you see 2023 shaping up in cybersecurity?
1: So it it, did interesting. I think um, we've seen a a shift. But as things get more mature on the sort of cybersecurity control side, we see the attackers moving and pivoting. Uh, And they will always like, you know, move to places where their success chances are greater. So, you know, they are rational actors and they move to areas where their return on investment is good. Um, We're certainly seeing a a rise in the attacks against sort of our, our identities. You know, the, the identity service, surface is the new attack surface. Uh, it, it's less about, you know, the, um, the, the perimeter and like you know, zero days uh, currently. Um, and as, as you look at sort of the attacks against the identity surface, we're seeing um, MFA being rolled out much more broadly and more sophisticated you know, controls around like a, um, authentication and authorization. Um, but then personally, we're actually seeing a significant increase in MFA bypass attacks. So as the control improves, and the attackers will attempt to bypass it, obviously. So MFA is not just like you've turned MFA on; I'm good to go. Now you need to sort of continuously be upgrading your MFA posture as well, and you always need to be, you know, improving more and more and more. And one of the sort of the undersung things, um, I think, needs to evolve more is a greater focus on, like, you know, decision making in cybersecurity and cybersecurity control rollout. Uh, so there's so much we can actually do. There's so many solutions uh, on the market and there's so much opportunity for new controls against new attacks. I think you know choosing where we deploy our scarce resources will become increasingly you know, critical now into the future because we don't have unlimited funds. The attackers seem to have unlimited funds. So there's always been this conversation about the uh, asymmetry of cybersecurity where the attackers have uh, unlimited time, unlimited funds, uh, where we are sort of like limited time and limited funds. Decision making is sort of one of the things that we can actually sort of you know, help balance that out. Uh, and I think that's interesting how you sort of find that balance. I mentioned a moment ago about like the balance between uh, baseline and also anticipatory controls, making sure your ROI is high and getting that decision making will be really important going forward into the future because we can invest very heavily in controls uh, that probably don't matter, that are already like you're being well controlled. Um, and leave sort of, like, you know, the back door open because, like, we haven't sort of, yet you focus know, focused on things where we might have lower controls.
0: Obviously, with the outbreak of the pandemic, a fundamental redefining of the mode of operation among Australian universities has occurred. Now we're a couple of years beyond the pandemic's outbreak. Institutions have had time to formulate a plan in response to it, as well as see elements like vaccines come into play, which have further assisted us to get to the new normal. When looking at the university sector as a whole now compared to the early days of the pandemic, what's pleased you most about the response to the challenge in terms of cyber security?
1: So cyber security uh,
0: happens in parallel to
1: the pandemic. So I think one of the things that actually we saw with the pandemic is many, many things shifted online very, very quickly. So we sort of had to see like, you know, that digital transformation effort happened. And that had to happen you know, alongside a commensurate sort of, you know, um, shroud of cybersecurity to try and like, you know, protect those you know new initiatives. And we also saw like, you know, an amplification of like you know, attacks, uh, which actually were targeting some of those new weak points um, very early in the pandemic. Uh, work from home technologies, uh, for example, like, you know, uh, voice over IP phone systems, um, instant messaging systems were far more attacked than possibly they were before because there was new opportunity there for the attackers. So I think that was actually like you know, covered relatively well by the sector. We were sort of you know, prepared and we had a lot of that technology already. We just basically had to, had to sort of shift. But one of the things I think that has really matured in the sector and um, more broadly in Australia, and it's on sort of a nice growth curve, is sharing threat intelligence. That's absolutely key to sort of making sure we can actually work together to provide a sort of a, you know, a coordinated response, but also like amplify all of our individual you know, capabilities um, so threat intelligence really is, you know, if someone attacks me, you can be pretty, pretty sure they're going to attack everybody else in the sector, you know, either pretty much immediately or, or in the near term, or they already have and we haven't told it. So we've gotten much better with, you know, sharing our threat intelligence. Likewise, if someone attacks, attacks my neighbour, I want to know about it so I can basically, you know, stop them before they sort of attack me. Uh, and you know, there's a variety of initiatives that we've actually worked through that through some of the sector-owned um, entities. You know, Ossert does a fantastic job at threat intelligence sharing. They've been in the game for a long time. We've now sort of, solidified that. The Australian Higher Education Cybersecurity Service has done some great work in threat intelligence sharing. And we're now starting to integrate into the the federal government initiatives as well, making sure that we actually do multi-sector threat intelligence sharing, because, you know, that's absolutely key. While there is a specific context you know, to attacks and like, you know, it's certain attackers attack certain industries, a lot of attackers are opportunistic. So the better you know, mix of threat intelligence we can get from you know, commercial sources, from government sources, uh, from like you know, sources within our own sector and build that into sort of like you know, with automation and uh, security automation, specifically seam and soil technologies, really means we can actually like you know, adopt a sort of a very proactive posture against attacks that you know our, our partners have actually seen already.
0: Equally, what work do you think remains to be done? Um, so everything. You know, the, one, of the,
1: one of the real challenges about cybersecurity uh, that has always sort of attracted me to it is every attack that has ever been successful uh, is, is still valid today. Because somewhere there's probably something sitting on your network, or someone sitting in in someone's cupboard at home, which is unpatched or still vulnerable, you know, they can pull it out and plug it in. So yeah, you know, you, we need to be sort of you know, very mindful of actually solving all of those sorts of problems in really really smart ways. But also there's a constant stream of new things coming down the pipeline. So we're like you know pushing aggressively into digital transformation as everybody is, which means we're new using new technologies, new processes, we have new people involved, and you know, they they are all. Um, amplify the complexity, which creates more opportunity for sort of like, you know, uh, hackers to sort of ha- have a look inside that. So it, it's sort of a continuously changing um, landscape. And I think if you're looking at, you know, sort of a static control framework, um, which you know, is very, very valued for historical things, um, that's probably going to leave you behind. I think you need to be very sort of proactive, looking forward, uh, adapt to where like, you know, the risk is coming from, but sort of you know, keep a, a measured approach to make sure you're sort of you know covering a, a good baseline uh, across everything. Um, but as I sort of you know, listen to myself say that, yeah, that that is probably one of the the greatest you know risks in cybersecurity as well. We're we're sort of you know hearing a lot about like a lot of our teams are sort of overwhelmed by like you know both you know the the quantity, you know the the escalating uh, business interest uh, and concern. So we need to sort of like, you know, balance that, like let's do everything all at once. So let's do like, you know, the, the sensible things at the right time, preserve our resources because, you know, this is not a short-term game. We're not going to solve it in like, you know, six months. We need to make sure like we, we have a very sustainable, you know, cybersecurity effort in all of our organizations and across the sectors.
0: The implications of generative AI for some aspects of the education sector are very immediate and apparent right away. For instance, many teachers have been wrestling with how to approach the use of chatbots in their students' academic work, and that conversation continues to grow as the technology continues to advance. But when looking beyond the classroom to the wider operation of a university's cybersecurity, what would you say are some of the underappreciated but important aspects of such emerging tech?
1: It's interesting. I think, you know, the generative technology has come on us really, really fast. Um, we certainly have been using machine learning uh, and deep learning for, like, you know, quite a few years uh, in, in various aspects across, like, you know, sort of our, our perimeter defense, uh, across sort of our identity attack services, certainly in correlation um, of our, like, you know, detection mechanisms in our same systems. So I think yeah, AI is well, relatively well understood in the sector. Um, the, the opportunities and risks with uh, the, the generative stuff as you know, we sort of you know, put in transformer algorithms in front of all this you know, data is, is very new. And I think it's sort of you know, crept up on us. So as I've sort of been like, you know, listening to sort of people's approaches, it hasn't really evolved past saying like, are we going to use chat GPT to write like, more phishing emails and it'll you know, be, make them more context sensitive and aware. I think that's probably true, but I think we're yet to see the really interesting things where uh, generative technology is, could, could come into play. But I think you know, there's a real sort of like a you know, set of risks around that. Um, I saw an interesting conversation the other day uh, where like you know a security researcher was basically asking like you know, ChatGPT, for example, which is you know, the generous technology which is in, in the media today and will be for a while, uh, how would you attack this organization? And of course, you know, ChatGPT came back and said, like, you know, oh, sorry, I can't do that. That's unethical. And then they sort of you know, re-engineered the prompt a bit a couple of times until I actually got ChatGPT to sort of you know, walk them through uh, this is how I would attack the organization if I was a security researcher and had to write a paper, which actually you know, needed to be informed about how to protect this organization. And, and essentially what it did was just walk through the mitre attack framework, like you know, from start to finish, saying you can do this and then this and this. This is how it sort of you know, builds. But the difference about generative technology. Uh, as opposed to sort of like, you know some of the uh, more you know, descriptive and responsive technologies, is it can generate you know, new insight based on pulling together different perspectives. So I think that uh, that that context-specific both attack and defence you know, is potentially an opportunity for generative technology, but it'll it'll take a while sort of like you know, that to be built into products. Um, but I think you know the, there's a lot of investment in the sector, so I'm really sort of looking forward to how some of that will change beyond just like you know just generating new chunks of text phishing emails.
0: Futurology is, of course, always an imprecise science. After all, if we believe some of the predictions from bygone decades, we should perhaps be asking today in 2023, where our flying cars and teleporting machines are. But it's also the case that some thoughtful predictions based on existing data now can shine a light on what we would expect to see happen in years ahead. So let's skip ahead a bit to 2030. Can you paint us a picture of what you feel could be cybersecurity pain points? Then, so I, I try not to be an
1: alarmist, um, but you could certainly paint some you know, sort of mere you know, nightmare cybersecurity scenarios. Um, but if you're projecting forward from where we are now, you know, things like you know uh, the rise of automation uh, and and hyper automation, which means like you know some you know, doing things you know faster than humans can actually react to, uh, both on the the attackers' side. Uh, and that needs to be measured with, on the defensive side. But then you start combining that with related technologies like, you know, so generative AI, where all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, a sequence of steps uh, is happening super, super fast uh, at machine speed. Then all of a sudden, like, the machines are basically giving you the next steps at machine speed in response to basically what it's seeing in the environment. So that's a sort of a, a really complex scenario where, you know, the, the speed increases so fast, you start to wonder, well, all of a sudden, like, humans are almost being taken out of the loop just because we, we are a bit slow. So we would sort of step back into sort of, like, you know, sort of, you know, a, a, a controlling aspect. And we started to see some elements of that. So you know, once upon a time, like, you know, cybersecurity attacks were sort of, you know, people doing stuff. And then you saw the, the rise of, like, you know, toolkits and, like, you know um, you know, machine-driven attacks, and then the, that, that formed sort of the baseline. But now the most sophisticated attacks still have a human at the end because they need to make decisions all the time continuously about things. When those decisions all of a sudden can be like automated and, and replaced with like a you know, generative AI and then done at human speed, uh, sort of at machine speed, not human speed, uh, it, it becomes sort of like a you know, quite uh, a concern, I think, as we sort of like loop through that. And again, that relies on us to sort of adjust our thinking, assuming that, you know, once upon a time, we had like, you know, a few weeks to be able to respond to like sort of a, a, an initial exploit. Um, it, you know, we're now seeing like initial exploits being used within a couple of hours, often within minutes, Um by humans, which are sort of, you know, AI-enabled or, like, machine-enabled. So as that sort of becomes more machine and less human, um, we're going to see that, you know, really start to challenge our notions of how we actually respond and how we do response because largely incident response is still, you know, largely a manual, human-driven process. So if we are responding with humans uh, to, like, your machines coming at us, you know, that, that that's not sustainable and, and not efficient. So we need to you know, find that balance on both sides. So I think... Um, at the moment, I suspect that, you know, the AI engines are sort of, you know, more on the defender's side. Uh, we have more investment there. But, you know, that won't last. I suspect, like, you know, as, you know, investment comes in on the attackers and they become more sophisticated and they need to find new ways to get ROI, they will increasingly become more automated uh, and, and more, more machine-oriented in their attacks, which means we need, in this continual sort of, you know, arms race, where all of a sudden, like, um, I, I do recall, you know, there was sort of a... Uh, a famous Simpsons episode, if I recall, where like, you know, a general gave a presentation to the graduating class of the academy and said like, you know, will be robots fighting like you know, robots and it'll all be like, you know, machines doing machines and like that's sort of the, the Terminator scenario. And I don't think it'll quite get there because yeah, humans you know, instinctively like to have a little bit of control, but you know, the, the, the speed uh, and the level of uh, impact that a human can actually have will actually progressively like, you know, change. Um, into sort of a, a different environment. So if you're not sort of, you're working on that now, uh, it, it, will, it will surprise you one day.
0: Just as you've detailed the potential pain points, what should we be doing now? And also what are we aspirational shall be developed and soon ready for use so that we can meet and respond to these pain points? So I, I think it's interesting. There's um,
1: uh, some very different perspectives on how the cybersecurity sector works both from like you know within the people charged with like you know, defending organizations and, and data versus like you know security vendors trying to you know, sell us things and also you know the government has a different perspective as well but some of the problems some of the fundamental issues are really can only be dealt with you know by government um, because you know they are sort of the ones with like you know the ability to sort of you know uh, deal internationally work through legal frameworks and I you know, there's, there's things there which individual organizations you know, and you know, even cybersecurity vendors can't do. And ultimately it's about changing you know, the, the, the motive uh, and the opportunity uh, and the means of like attackers. Um, and, and that, that changes the, the dynamic. So that's probably the thing that actually would most you know, change the environment and the landscape. And there is a lot of work happening in that space. So all of a sudden, like, you know, if our ransomware crews never got paid. Yeah, that probably means that they would like, yeah, be a little bit less interested in investing their, their precious time. Uh, yeah, if all of a sudden it was much, much you know, harder, for like um, you know, to, to for attackers to attack us, uh, because we basically just like you know, cut off access to anybody or, or countries that were like used as like a you know, major pivot points for attack. Yeah, you know, that, that all of a sudden changes their opportunity. Uh, and if we work with other governments to really like you know, crack down on attackers, uh, where, where they come from, yeah, you know, that that sort of reduces their means and their their ability to sort of like you know build sustainable criminal organizations. But that requires uh government policy, a high level of government cooperation. And that I think is you know quite challenging in our current geopolitical environment. And you've seen that you know over the years it sort of waxes and wanes. You know, the geopolitical environment is very friendly. You can actually see some of those sorts of attacks you know be muted by law enforcement. But when the geopolitical environment isn't very friendly, law enforcement you know starts to lose its impact to sort of like you know work with like countries where attacks are coming from. That's not to say that like you know it's easy to categorise into sort of you know different like you know countries or its the states uh but yeah, as a generalization it actually is it's pretty accurate we certainly see like a high proportion of tax come from certain places so we know they are higher risk and we can sort of factor out it into our defenses but we have very little uh, ability to sort of you know change that motive opportunity and means conversation uh, on, on the attacker side so i think yeah, that's something that like i i really would encourage everybody sort of you know think about and and play a role where they can, because that sort of yeah, you know, changes the dynamic. And that you know fundamentally changes like you know, one of the um the issues we have, the fact that like you know, the, the volume of attacks is growing and the sophistication of attacks is growing, and their resources and the attackers are growing. Um, we need to change that to sort of like yeah you know, help give ourselves a chance in
0: the future. What insights would you like to share specifically with cybersecurity professionals keen to learn more from another professional in their field? The cybersecurity
1: um, by itself is almost becoming its own discipline. So certainly it was you know, born out of information security, which was probably born out of network security. And uh, speaking as a sort of an older person in the field, um, it, it has been an evolution, but it is now such a broad and complex field um, where you need to sort of understand a little bit of the you know, many IT fields, but then there are just domain-specific cybersecurity skills you need to sort of develop as well. So I think it's important to have you know good breadth. Um, but also within that bread, there's a lot of you know, specific roles people can actually have. So you don't need to be highly technical to work in cybersecurity anymore. Um, you, know, you could be a cybersecurity policy analyst, and yeah, the end not know how to program or code or have like you know just you know sort of your routine you know, um, technical skills for administration, for example, um, without a, a big IT background. And uh, that's really really important, sort of like a build out the capability of the profession broadly. Um, but if you were sort of new in cybersecurity, I would sort of encourage people to you know get a lot of breadth, at least be able to understand all the different parts of cybersecurity. Um, so when we sort of you know, example we'll teach you know cybersecurity in our masters program, that's one of the things I try to portray strongly is like you, know, you need to understand a little bit of everything, uh, but then when you actually find something, it really is is your niche and your groove, and then you can go deep into it. And that's sort of like you know the the notion of a T-shaped professional, which is probably a uh, Good career advice for anybody in IT and most people. Now, if you have a good baseline, you know, lots of breadth so you can actually like use transferable skills across a lot, a lot of different domains, industries, but then you want to go sort of your know, niche because niche is basically where you can actually add a lot of specific contextual value and that differentiates you from other people when you're going for jobs as well. And then there are certain jobs where you need your know, deep experience, but your deep experience really is only realized when you can have that conversation with many, many people across, like, in broad fields. So I think the concept of a T-shaped professional is is, is quite uh, important. Um, So don't be afraid to specialise, but don't lose contact with, like, you know, the, the broader group as well.
0: And with that last question here, that brings us to the end of this conversation. Thank you to those in our audience. And, Scott, a special thanks to you for taking part in this chat. Thanks, Ed. It's been an absolute pleasure. Just as this has been a great conversation here, please keep an eye out for another installment soon of CSO Executive Sessions Australia.